let's start. I hope this. Tom, what are you doing? Say? Well, why don't you sit here? I mean, they can't see you. Linda's talking People's to Tom. Here, you can hear. Aren't you going to listen to some of this? <laughs> Linda, get on here. <laughs> oh, I can't hear Bob. Something it just just it just is not working. Um, I can't get my mouse to work, um, but damn it, what I don't know what to do. Oh, God bless. Can you get the cursor to move around with the keyboard? I don't. I can't. Hey, Dr. H, just go ahead and plug in your old one real quick. This is oh, Mike, by the way. Oh, there you are. I thought we left you or lost you. No, I'm um, still um, Do you want to get it, Doc? It's on the table. Cancel. I want to know when we can meet at Mary Jane's. <laughs> if, we all, if we all fly up to, that, to Lake Huron... You guys hold on. I'm gonna I'm gonna switch um, a mouse. Can you can you plug it in, Doc? Where? Hmm? Where? I I don't know. Try anywhere, honestly. And one of the things. Yeah, just send one of the USBs. In front. You can put it in front in even front? here. Yeah. Mike, do I need to take the other one off? Not at all. Okay. I thought you were gone. He's smart. I sensed danger. <laughs> Okay, this this works. This works. Okay. Actually, this is good because it's in the front. Okay, we're good. Mike, we're good. You have a, a so good evening. So sense danger, you can okay. stay. But otherwise, we're all right. The, these, the, these are on, right, Doug? Yes. Let's, let's start. Let's start. Um, all of you know that the... Um, that all of the hard copies, all of the files with notes are on the website, the literature's prophecy, so you can go any you can go there and get them anytime you want. I've included a lot of poems because I know some of you enjoy reading poetry. Um, um, some of we've already done, but it's good to have. So I think some of you look for poetry to read. It's you know, you can go th there's a there's a lot of poetry there. So you can go online anytime you want. Um, there's some psalms. So, what's what's he saying? Mike just wants to be sure there's nobody waiting. Can you go through your participant list? It doesn't show anybody waiting. Okay. All right. Thanks, Mike. Mike, Bye. thank you. God bless that guy. If everybody would say a prayer of thanksgiving to Mike for all that he does, I mean his. His generosity and his patience have been just amazing. Um, you all know that you can go online and get the, the hard copies, so feel free to use them. I put on the copies of the Hemingway stories that we did, I think, a year ago. I'm not sure that they're legal. I'm just not sure. I think they are. But um, if you want them, I, I, would, I would encourage everybody to read those those stories, they're very, very short, and I think they're outstanding. They're just, they're very short, they're good, they're modern, 
Um, Karen's response, which actually surprised me, was that she loved them because they tend to be a little bit dark. Um, but I've got other things to say about them. But anyway, we will start Hemingway either at the end of tonight's class or next week, probably next week. And I'll start with those stories, just a quick review, and then we'll start Old Man and the Sea. Um, so all of, all of the, the hard copies and the poetry and the stories are online. Um, so f feel free to use them. Um, get any copy of Old Man on the Sea that you like. I, I had to get a new copy because I couldn't find my old one. We'll just make do, even if all of us have different copies, okay? And I think that's it. We will spend a couple of weeks on Old Man on the Sea, and then I think we're going to do Billy Budd, Melville's Billy Budd, which is another short work. So I think that's it. Let's, let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, um, thank you, Lord, for um, the gift of this day, for the gift of yourself this morning in the Mass, for your words to us. We're back in ordinary time, facing ordinary things, and all of them give hints of miracles. Um, all the readings call us back to you keep our focus on you and not let the world distract us. Um, we can get so caught up with our problems that we forget. Um, easy to do. Strengthen us please that no matter what's going on, even if something alarming is going on in our life, somewhere in us our focus is on you, our trust is on you. That's what you call us to. Um, the readings we're doing are, are showing y you working in our world in the midst of all sorts of disorders. Um, violence, denials, betrayals. Um, all of them show us aspects of ourselves. Um, we're no better than Peter, and you asked Peter to be the head of your church, and he betrayed you. Um, strengthen us against those kinds of failings. When we fall, um, help us to return to you, to recover. Um, help us to be aware of those weaknesses in us, each one of us, that threaten us and um, our efforts to bring you to what we do with each other, particularly in our efforts in our families, um, in our marriages, in our, with our kids. Um, help us to bring you, and maybe more importantly, to risk ourselves, because in our world, um, it's easy to go along with the world and not risk uh, for you. Give us the courage, the faith to do that when it's hard, trusting in you. Let our trust be there. Okay. I ask a blessing on all that we're doing. Um, help us to read well, um, because my own belief is that if we learn to read well here, we will become better readers in the world. We think we read so well, over and over again we learn that we don't. Give us the humility to see that we don't read well, that we don't understand, so that we can be more open to your mysteries. Let us have no questions, no questions about the dogmas of our church. They are our bedrock. They are the rock of our belief. But with respect to everybody, everything else, Help us to stay open um, to receive you, to move with you. 
We offer these prayers in Christ our Lord. Amen. Okay, um, a poem and um, Dostoevsky. And I'm going to do a, just a brief review tonight because I really want to get to these questions. It's going to be a little bit unusual tonight because generally you know that I try to go through the book, but we've already. I know you've all read it, and I know you know it really well. You've done a thorough reading. If I gave you a quiz on passages, you'd be able to identify them. Um, so, but I want to get to these questions because they get to larger perspectives and ask us to hold on more than brothers. So I'm eager to get to them. I'll get to the poem in a second. What I thought I would do tonight to look forward, because we're going to do Hemingway, I'm going to read the first page from Hemingway's Old Man on the Sea, just to give you a taste. Now remember, this is about an old Spanish guy. He's old, um, maybe older than Bob and me. I, I, I think we're, I think, I think we've got, got, maybe Carl belongs there. I don't know, but he's an old man. He goes out to sea. I'm the oldest. I, how old are you, Marcy? I think I'm older than you. No. 86. Oh, God. Okay. I, I defer to you. I defer to you. Yes, you do. Yes. <laughs> um, it's an old man going out to sea. You know, he's lived at the sea. He's got a strong body. He's a very determined guy. He's not going to let physical things get him down. Um, he goes out to sea, and he'll catch a marlin. So that's it. That's the story. And it was shortly after he wrote this story that he got the Nobel Prize. And I, it wasn't just this story, because Hemingway had already distinguished himself. He and Faulkner were the two American writers who held the American consciousness. Um, Eliot in, in um, Europe, in England, and Joyce. But here at home, it was Hemingway and Faulkner. And I think in some ways, they were both rivals, um, very aware of each other and in some ways critical of each other. But Hemingway had already established himself as a writer who was doing something nobody had ever... If, if you read his writings, you know that he writes in short declarative sentences. I mean, it's a lesson in writing for anybody who wants to learn how to write. Um, and I think Gertrude Stein is the one who helped him along that line because he, she said to him, look at the way the Bible is written. Because you know if the Bible's written, it's got a sentence going, and, 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 and. Just all these short declarative sentences. So there's nothing sophisticated, nothing stylistic. They're just, it's a very simple prose. And Hemingway wrote these stories using what is, I think actually he identified as the tip of the iceberg. He will only show you um, the barest amount of what goes on in the world but in such a way that we know that underneath that tip, what he's showing us are these profound depths. So when you read Hemingway, you get this very simple language, absolutely simple. It's so easy to read, but you become aware that he, the way that he's done it makes us aware that there are profound things going on because of the way he's done it that shows that he, in his own simple way, was a really profound thinker. So um, shortly after publishing this, he got, he'd won the Pulitzer Prize for Old Man on the Sea, and then he got the Nobel Prize. <clears throat> this is the first page. And it's going to be like this. It's just a very, very short story. It's going to be like this through the whole thing. Here's the first page. 
it's just disarming in its simplicity beguilingly simple beguilingly simple he was an old man who fished alone in a skiff in the Gulf Stream and he had gone 44 days now without taking a fish can't get any simpler than that in the first 40 days a boy had been with him but after 40 days without a fish the boy's parents had told him that the old man was now def definitely and finally Salao, which is the worst form of unlucky. And the boy had gone at, um, at their orders in another boat which caught three good fish the first week. It made, the, it made the boy sad to see the old man come in each day with his skiff empty, and he always went down to help him carry either the coiled lines or the gaff and the harpoon and the sail that was furled around the mast. The sail was patched with flour sacks and furled. It looked like the flag of permanent defeat. Those are the, op that's the opening paragraph. That's it. Remember that line. Um, it looked like the flag of permanent defeat. Now, I think I've said this before. It was... Um, it was, hold on, um, oops, um, it was, um, um, this story that made William Faulkner say of Hemingway that Hemingway discovered God. So one of the questions that I'd just like you guys to keep on mind when you're reading the story is this. You know that one of the things that we've been trying to do since we began was to see if we could find God or Christ in our world. In church, he's there. We've got an image of him in church. <laughs> it saddens me a little bit that when we leave church, it's almost as if we leave Christ behind, that God isn't in the world. We go to work, we have our struggles in our family, and yet we know that he never leaves us. Can we find him there? Does he, <laughs> does he take a week off from the weekends when we leave church and, you know, he takes a holiday? What is God doing um, outside of church? Where is he present? Can we see him at work? And you know that in so many of the works, we don't see God. In the Iliad, in the Odyssey, in the Aeneid, the gods were constantly visible interacting with men. We, we had an image of them. So in the pre-Christian world, we saw gods, the divine order, constantly interacting with men. In the, in the modern era in which we don't believe in God, I mean, lots of people don't, we, we talk about this as a post-Christian era, you read novels and there's no God present. There's no God present. So lots of the writers that we've been reading have had to deal with a non-religious world and somehow speak to it um, in a way that wouldn't turn them away. Um, so they had to find new ways of speaking. Eliot, um, C.S. Lewis, Chesterton, um, Faulkner. Here in Old Man of the Sea, Hemingway is telling the story about this old man going out to sea, catching a marlin. That's it. I'm, I'm not going to give the story, but that's it. We don't see God in and out. There's no God hovering over the skiff. There's no God walking on the water. Um, it's this old man. So my question to you guys when you read this, 
what is it that made Faulkner say about Hemingway, in this story he discovered God? Okay, big question. Here's a story about a guy going to work. Most of us, except <laughs> for any of you who happen to be retired right now, I don't know what any of that, you know, even if you're retired, it doesn't mean God's going to stop doing things in your life. Um, where's God in our work, in our family, on the street? Where is he? What's he doing? Do we see him? Are we aware of him? So that's my big question, okay, as we look in or look forward next week to starting Old Man of the Sea. Any questions about that? It's a very straightforward question. Very, I mean, sorry, straightforward story. Very simple, very simple. Um, but it led Faulkner to say that. So there's something there for us to see. Can we find it? Can we find it? Okay. No questions? Bob, not a question, just a comment. Who's to that? To me, it seemed like Faulkner with, Faulkner with punctuation. Is that Karen? Yeah. <laughs> Where I did I was looking for you. Where? What? Go ahead. What about Fa or Hemingway and punctuation or Faulkner and punctuation? Yeah, to me the old man in the sea was Faulkner with punctuation. <laughs> did everybody get that? I thought that was good. That was nice, Karen. That was good. She said that's Faulkner. He's a modern with punctuation. If, and if any of you, I'm gonna, this is going to be a slam at Karen right now. I, she may click off and not talk to me again. If any of you have seen the movie, the Searching for Bobby Fischer, it's a wonderful family movie. It's about a young kid who's got a genius for chess. And the, the father and mother realize it soon, and they put him up with a, um, a chess champion to teach him. And finally, he has to go to a black guy in the parks to learn a different spirit, a different mentality, because this classic mentality isn't enough. He's got to learn to have this spirit to fight. You know, that, that is, you've got to learn to grow up in the playground on the streets if you're going to play basketball. Um, because if you just grow up in a classical world, you won't have that toughness that you need to deal with life. And in one of the scenes where, he's, where the young boy is with the classical chess champion, the classical chess champion is saying, visualize this, visualize this. And the boy is too young. He can't do it. And finally the man in anger sweeps the board and gets rid I mean real anger. Sweeps the board and gets rid of all the chess and then says in anger, now visualize it. I actually did that with my grandson a couple months ago. Not, not with that kind of anger. but In fact, not with any anger. But I, we were working out with basketball and I wanted to, him to do something. I told him to close his eyes and listen so he could respond to sounds and what he was doing at the ball. Um, so, Karen, I hope one day you will go back to Faulkner and see past the punctuation. <laughs> Maybe, but not tomorrow. I know, I know, I know. Anyway, I thought that's a good analogy. Faulkner with punctuation. What a wonderful, God bless your soul. Okay, here's the poem for tonight. We're going to do um, Hopkins, the, um, the starbright night, the starlight night. Hopkins, I'm not going to comment on it except to say this. 
Hopkins is describing the heavens in a way very different from the way a scientist would. You know that a scientist would look at a star in terms of energy burning out. They would have a mathematical geometric grasp of that star. That's the habit of the scientific mind. To see something the way a poet would see it is very different. Hopkins is looking at the heavens aware of Christ as a creator. And he's seen the presence of a creator in the stars. And from that vantage point in the heavens with the stars, he's looking down on the earth and he's finding lights everywhere. It's a little like Faulkner. Actually, Faulkner has these, if you remember Faulkner's description of the earth, it's like lights coming out of the earth. Um, he's describing things on the earth, that, the poplars that turn upside down and turn their leaves upside down and look into the light. And it's, it's like doves being set loose in the sky. It's a, it's a description of, of real beauty in nature. And at the center of it, are you coming? It's the center of it is a farmhouse. And in the farmhouse, this meal is being offered. And we're to understand that this is a harvest. So it's like an image of the Eucharist with those present participating. And you, you, you can call to mind all sorts of images from the Bible, the Eucharist, the, the virgins, you know, with the lamps, some of whom are ready, we were there for the master when he came and some who left. But um, what he's seeing, what he's presenting is this, this scene on earth that in some ways reflects the scene in the heavens. There's this glorious beauty and at the center of it is Christ. Okay? The starlight night. Look at the stars. Look, look up at the skies. Oh, look at all the fire folks sitting in the air. The bright burrows, these little communities, the different constellations. The circle citadels there. Down in dim woods, the diamond dells, the diamonds, the beautiful things from the earth where quick gold lies. Windbeat, white beam, airy abilies set on a flare. Flake doves sent floating forth at a farmyard scare. Ah well, it is all a purchase. All is a price. There's a cost to it. There's a cost to this. How many of us see that? How many of us are willing to pay the price for that vision? Buy them. Bid them. What? Prayer, patience, alms, vows, those are the costs. There's only one way to purchase those things. It's not with money. Prayer, patience, alms, vows, that's what we have to do to enter that farmyard. Look, look, a May mess. Like on orchard boughs, look, March bloom, like a mealed with yellow salads. These are indeed the barn. Within doors house the shocks the harvest. This bright, this peace bright paling shuts the spouse, Christ home, Christ and his mother, and all his hallows. It's not an easy poem like so many of his poems. It, it bears rereading, so I would just suggest go online. It's included in the poems there that I that I put there. Um, and read it. Um, remember I'm only going to leave the Hemingway stories in for a while, so if you're going to use them, 
take them out and cut their their hard copies words so you can print them yourselves because I'm gonna I'm gonna delete it after a little bit okay let's do uh, a quick review and then um, to get to these questions um, okay um, Last week, we, we looked at the, very briefly at the exchanges between Ivan and Smirjikov and Ivan and the Devil, and we focused on Ivan's exchange with the Devil, and then we went from those exchanges to the courtroom. And what we saw was that um, it, it was difficult to determine whether the exchanges between the Devil and Ivan were real. And I want to go back to that question. Uh-oh, what happened? Sorry, there's no light here. Um, can you guys see me okay? I, I can now. You blinked off for a moment, but yeah. you're back. Yeah, it's all dark. I don't know what's going on. Can you, can you turn that light? Like? Um, That's wild. A brownout. Yeah. Yeah. Am I back? Can you, you can hear me, yes? I can hear you and I can see you. Okay. I want to just very briefly look at a couple of pages just to recall the difficulty that Dostoevsky's led us with. If you look at the notes for, I think it's the, um, it's the notes in class 10 on page 4, you'll see, you don't have to go there, you can just listen, but, boy, this is dark. Um, can you get that on the lamp? I'm Okay. Um, on page 639, you don't have to go there, but, um, in the, in the exchange between Ivan and the devil, a couple of things just to keep in mind, okay? Remember the devil is describing himself as wanting to be incarnate. He wants to, <laughs> he wants to take possession of, I don't know, a 300-pound woman and live comfortably and <laughs> for eternity. I mean, I, however he conceives of that. But he says that he, got, he came down with rheumatism and... and and went to the doctors to see if they could cure him, but they couldn't. They couldn't do much. Um, I don't know if that's going to help. Thanks, Doc. Um, and then he has this line: a couple of things. One on page six thirty-nine, he says, um, um, he says that. Um, Middle of 639, you keep saying the same thing, but I caught such rheumatism last year that I still remember it. The devil with rheumatism? Because the devil's not, devils don't have bodies. And he says, why not? If I sometimes become incarnate, because we know that devils can possess human beings. Christ had to exercise. He had to chase the demons out of human body. So we know from exorcism and our belief and our faith that devils can actually take possession of a human being. Why not, if sometimes become incarnate? Once incarnate, I accept the consequence. Satan, and here's the catcher, sum et nilhi humanum ame alienum puto. That I, um, I can as a man, I am a man, and I can, nothing is alien to me as a man. And um, how's that, Satan? Sum et nilhi humanum? Not too bad for the devil. 
I'm glad you finally pleased. I'm glad I finally pleased you. And you didn't get that from me, Ivan suddenly stopped, as if in amazement. That never entered my head. How strange. Now, periodically, Dostoevsky is making us aware that while most of the time Ivan can say, you got that from me, so you're not real, you're just a projection, occasionally something will happen that will puzzle Ivan because the devil's saying something that clearly he didn't get from Ivan. This is one of them. And then on the following page, 641, the devil says he went to the doctors and the doctors couldn't do anything and he happened to take this um, malt by accident in the middle of 641. He took this malt by accident. He says it was cured me was Hoff's extract of malt. I accidentally bought some, drank a glass and half and could even have danced. And when he went to tell the doctors they couldn't publish it because they were embarrassed to, to make the argument that that a, a creature got healed when he was the devil would make them look absurd. So, and there's no way Yvonne could have known that article. So here's another instance of the devil seeming to do something that's beyond Yvonne's um, consciousness. Then at the end of the chapter in 649, you remember that Yvonne on page 648 says, shut up or I will kill you. This is 648. And the devil says, kill me, no, excuse me but I will have my say, I came in order to treat myself, I came in order to treat myself to that pleasure. Ivan wants to kill him, but the devil is saying, no, that's reserved for me. Now hold on, because we know that Smerdyakov is going to kill himself, and I think Dostoevsky is presenting it in such a way that we're being asked to hold those two figures together, Smerdyakov and the devil. He gets angry at him, and in 649, he throws a glass of water at him, bottom of the page. He throws the water, and then just then there's this knocking on the door, 650. Listen, you better open, the visitor cried. It's your brother Alyosha with the most unexpected and interesting news, I guarantee it. The devil is saying to him, it's Alyosha. How could he know that unless it was the devil? because he's there inside the room. Ivan says, shut up, deceiver. I knew it was Alyosha without you. I, that is, every time the devil tries to convince him he's real, Ivan tries to counter by showing him that it was already in him. He's trying to do everything he can um, to support his disbelief. He, do, he does not want to give in to this figure. Shut up, deceiver. I knew it was Alyosha without you. I had a presentiment of him, and of course, he hasn't come for no reason. Of course he has news. And you know that um, at that moment the narrator describes Ivan going to the door and Ivan looks back at the table and sees the glass of water that he just threw or thought he threw on the table. So there's a piece of evidence suggesting that's a dream. So Dostoevsky's doing both things. He's very subtly making these arguments and giving evidence that the devil may be real, and then other kinds of evidence that leave us wondering if he is real. Okay. Now, he opens the door on page 651, and Alyosha says, it's good that you come, Ivan said, or brother, he said, um, you're terrible, you look bad. Um, it's good that you've come, Ivan says, thoughtfully as it were, seeming not to have heard Alyosha's explanation. I knew he had hanged himself. From whom? I don't know from whom, but I knew. 
Did I know? Yes, he told me he was. So when Alyosha says Smirjikov killed himself, Ivan says, I already knew it. How could he have known it unless he got it from the devil? Um, shortly after that, Alyosha says, you look sick, let me get a towel and dampen it and put it around your head. And Ivan gives instructions to go get the towel because in his recollection, he had already wetted that towel and put it around his head. But when he gives Alyosha the instructions, Alyosha looks over and the towel's not there. When he does find the towel, it's where he usually keeps the towels and it's dry. So like the glass, it's another piece of information that suggests this was all an hallucination. So Dostoevsky, just, just a genius, Dostoevsky is doing everything he can to make this seem real and yet we're left with these questions. One last, one last comment before we turn to the trial. It seems to me one of the most convincing pieces of evidence in support of the devil being real is that it's all, the whole scene is presented objectively. We don't get it through Ivan's consciousness. We get it through an observer. It's like the narrators there presenting it and there's a real figure on the couch across from Ivan and the two are talking with each other. So the way that it's presented to us is um, objectively as if it's a truth in itself. So Dostoevsky has presented this scene um, with Ivan engaging a devil or a devil engaging him, but leaving us with these questions. Is he real? Is he not? I just want to leave it there and, and then quickly cover um, the courtroom scene and then come back to the two scenes for any questions you guys might have. But you remember that we shift the next day to the courtroom and the, the two attorneys um, are both brilliant men. They're, they're known for their, um, their legal expertise, their experiences. Um, the defense attorney is, is named Fetchukovich and the prosecutor's Kirillovich. Um, when the narrator describes the scene, it describes Dmitri coming into the courtroom and all the women looking in sympathy at him. So the women are already prejudging him. They, they see him as innocent. He's a ladies' man. They're just, they think he's innocent because of that prejudice. All the men look at him and assume he's guilty because he's offended so many of them at one time or another. So immediately when we go into the courtroom, we're faced with groups of people who prejudge a person based on their prejudices. Now remember, one of the central truths, one of the defining kernels of insight at the center of this book is unless, unless we see ourselves as a sinner in the same sense that the person before us is a sinner, we will never be able to judge that person correctly. But too often, because of the prejudices we have in our mind, we're too ready to condemn people, make a judgment about them um, that will be false. There will be something about that person we don't see. Only God can see that person. So we're, we're immediately made aware of these prejudices in the courtroom. And then um, Fetjokovic goes through the um, witnesses. He shows that Gregory was drunk, that we can't trust his view. Each of the doctors makes a different claim based on a prejudice. Um, Herzen, um, Herzen's tube, the village doctor, 
says he was unstable and the proof of the, the proof of his conclusion is um, that he, um, he didn't look at the ladies and since he was a ladies man he should have so it's on that ba- that is well that that prejudice leads to that conclusion the Moscow doctor says if he did kill him as a, a crime of passion and um, he's convinced that um, he should have looked at the defense attorney because he his presumption is that everybody does something out of self-preservation so the fact that he didn't look at the um, defense attorney is an indication that he was guilty so he, over and over again Dostoevsky is showing that the conclusions that people come to rest on these prejudices these preconceived notions um, Varvinsky the other doctor believes Dmitri is normal and the proof of that would have been that he looked straight ahead at the judge because the judge is going to be the one to decide the case. He takes on all the characters. Um, Alyosha describes the moment when he talked with um, Dimitri and Dimitri kept um, pressing his chest and Alyosha's convinced that there was money there. All there's, This is all circumstantial. There's no evidence. The, the, the defense is really doing nothing to discredit the accusation because all these things are circumstantial. Katrina tells um, of the scene she had when she went to Dmitri for help. That adds nothing. Grushenka says Dmitri wouldn't lie. I mean, what basis of evidence is that? Ivan finally comes to the stand and says that um, Smerdjikov had done it um, and he had had these conversations with the devil. So everything that Ivan says discredits himself because people are not going to believe in the devil. When Katrina hears Ivan's testimony, she becomes terribly upset because she believes Ivan has incriminated himself. So she comes back to the stand to testify against Dmitri and, um, and produces the letter in which Dmitri said he would kill his father. Um, Kirillovich um, believes that Dmitri is a symptom of a larger national problem that there's the savage violence that's it's, it's like watching our country today that that the Russia's become lawless and Dmitri fits into this larger pattern and he um, he should be put away um, as as a way of taking a stand against this larger problem. He argues that Dmitri's saying that he hated his father and he does everything he can to show that Dim, that, that Smirjikov is um, could not cannot be a suspect that he's um, that he's feeble-minded that he has no motives and the irony is that Smirjikov had plenty of motives he's an illegitimate kid he um, he stood outside of his family he could hate his father and envy his brothers um, um, he he goes back to the scene about the envelope and shows that it's um, um, that Smirjikov could not be the killer on the basis of what happened with that envelope and he ends his argument saying for the sake of truth and justice it was absolutely crucial that Dmitri be seen as guilty and be put away and on very little evidence when um, Fetchukovich responds in his closing arguments he says that there was no money there's no proof that there was any money at all and no murder that um, there's no evidence of a murder there that um, if there was a murder it had to be somebody else 
nobody else could have done it. And if it was Dimitri, in a sense, it was an excusable murder because his father was a violent man. So his last plea, and this is really interesting, is that even if he's guilty, um, it would be a crime to send him away to jail because it would only turn him into a hardened criminal because that's what the legal system does. So he, he, he throws Dimitri at the mercy of the course and says, turn this man free. The only appropriate justice would be to show him mercy. So justice and mercy are separated. And you know that the jury adjourns and they come back an hour later and they find him. The whole courtroom, after the defense attorney's closing argument, was um, convinced that Dimitri was innocent. That the defense attorney's argument was sufficient to get him off. So they expected the jury to return with a um, not guilty decision. But the jury comes back an hour later and they, they find him guilty. And they're all shocked. So once again, like the like the meeting between Yvonne and, and the devil, in which we're left wondering, is he real or not? Um, we don't know. What we're left with after the jury trial is nobody, this is the crucial point, nobody gets it right. Nobody. Not Alyosha, who in the goodness of his heart believes he's not guilty, but he doesn't know, based on the evidence. Nobody gets it right. The defense attorney's arguments don't conform to what happened. The prosecution, the prosecution's arguments don't conform. Neither one of them makes a case, and yet on the basis of that case, Dimitri's guilt is decided. Everybody in the courtroom got it wrong, the attorneys got it wrong. So we walk out of that courtroom knowing nobody got it right. What Dostoevsky is showing again, once again, is that reason by itself is not adequate to get to the inside of a human being. It's exactly the point that Zossa made in the beginning. Remember when he said the, the whole issue behind a, a criminal system, a justice system, is that it's impossible for anybody to correct the conscience of a criminal. Remember he, the, in the state church argument, he said if the state does it, the state's going to prosecute a man. A force of law will, will never be adequate to change a man's conscience. It's only when the church absorbs the state and it can invoke powers of excommunication that the threat will be great enough to make a man can, um, recover his conscience and reform. So the central issue with this book is how do you reform the, the conscience of a man who's sinned? And we've been seeing from the with Lisa, with Ilyosha, the young boy, that whenever, particularly with Lisa in the long book, and Dimitri, whenever, this is God's justice. It was one of my opening, you know, presentations. It's important to see justice in terms of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, just, justice did not mean following the positive law. It meant acting in accord with God's law. And that's the law of the universe. In the commandments that he gave, to be one with him, with God. So when a man commits a sin, it can be small when he's a kid. He can be 10, 12, 20, 30, 40. He's going to carry around a guilt. The question is what to do to answer that guilt. If the state comes in, is it adequate to change it? And Zosima's argument is no. The argument we're left with at the end is no. They all got it wrong. 
Dimitri wants to suffer. He wanted to suffer before the courtroom case. He, he feels guilty. He made it clear before the trial. He wanted to go off and suffer. So, the, so at, the end of the, at the end of the novel, after the courtroom scene, we're left with this sense that reason is inadequate to get to the heart of this problem. And that's where it's left. We know in the epilogue that um, Katrina and Ivan have made plans to help Dimitri escape, that the plan is to get Dimitri to America, and after they've, um, after they've been away long enough to, where things could settle down, they want to return to their home and come back to Russia. And then we get to the epilogue. I'm going to cover the epilogue very, very briefly, just in a, in, a, in a minute. And then I want to take up questions and then whatever questions you guys have up to this point. And then I want to look at those four questions I asked. But in the epilogue, remember that Ilyusha died and the mother grieved. And it, it, it's a reminder of the scene earlier when all the boys met at the house and the mother wanted that toy. And she insisted she have it, even though it meant the boy had to give it up. Here at the funeral, the mother wants a flower and the father will not give the flowers up. He wants them for his son. He's so grieved at his death. And you know that they go to the funeral and from there the boys go to that stone. And um, on the way to the stone, the, the father suddenly is grieved um, that he has the flowers knowing that his wife, Ilyusha's mother, wanted them as grieving. So he runs back to give the mother the flowers. It's like a moment of contrition, guilt, takes them back, and it leaves Alyosha and Kolya and all the boys alone. And I just want to read briefly here from page 774. You don't have to go there. You can just remember the pages. They're there at the stone. Um, Kolya and Alyosha are going to go back to the family to have an, a meal. And one of the questions Kolya raises, how can they celebrate? The guy's just, you know, the boy's just dead. Kolya's very bright. He, sh he shows he's very bright. And there's an element of contempt. We've talked about that. He's, he's a proud kid. And he, he tries to pretend that he's knowing. And one of the signs of his knowing is that he doesn't believe in God. And, and Alyosha puts that to shame. And, and Kolya loves him because he... Kolya learns to trust him for his goodness. And here's this moment when the boys gather together to honor Ilyusha's death. And it will probably be the last time they see each other. They're going to part because you know that Alyosha is going out into the world. 774. Gentlemen, we shall be parting soon. Right now I shall be with my two brothers for a while. One of whom is going into exile. He's grieving. Um, Dimitri is going to go... He's sentenced to Serbia, you know, for long years of punishment. And Ivan is sick, feverish. I mean, there's some thought that he might die. He's just, he seems undone. But soon I shall leave this town, perhaps for a very long time, and so we shall part, gentlemen. Let us agree here by Ilyusha's stone. They will never forget. First, Ilyushka, Ilyush, Ilyusheka, and second, one another. We will not forget this time. Whatever may happen to us later in life, even if we do not meet for 20 years afterwards, let us always remember how we buried the poor boy whom we once threw stones at. Remember there by the little bridge? 
and whom afterwards we all came to love so much. He was a nice boy, a kind and brave boy. He felt honor, and his father's bitter offense made him rise up. Remember, my suggestion was Lisa and Ilyosha are an indication of the future, and it's not very bright. Ilyosha is a boy of honor. He's like his father, but that way of honor, as it was for Shakespeare, is disappearing. We know that from Shakespeare's plays. We've entered a modern world. It's a commercial world. It's not this courtly world of romance or knighthood where men do things out of honor. They do it for self-interest and money. Elisha is dying. Lisa is moving forward in a almost a demonic state. So those are the two young people on whom the and these two boys on whom the future rests. So it's a very uncertain future. Okay. So first of all, let us remember him, gentlemen, all our lives. And even though we may be involved with the most important affairs, achieve distinction, or fall into some great misfortune, all the same, let us never forget how good we once felt here. He goes on to say, even if we commit bad things, even if we do bad deeds, let us recover ourselves, recall this moment, because if we do, it'll call us back to the best sense of ourselves. So this memory is central. Even if they fall, and I think he's got Kolya particularly on his mind, but all of them, because they're young, they're going to, the likelihood is they'll do foolish things. You must know that there's nothing higher or stronger or sounder or more useful afterwards in life than some good memory, especially a memory from childhood, from the parental home. You hear a lot said about your education, yet some such beautiful sacred memory preserved from childhood is perhaps the best education. No matter know what happens, <coughs> hold on to your memory. 775. Um, remember now how we've been talking just now. So much as friends, so together by this stone, the most cruel and jeering man among us, if we should become so, will still not dare laugh within himself at how kind and good he was at this present moment. No matter what he becomes, let him go back to that moment when they were all together to hold on to that goodness that they shared together. It's the memory of that goodness that will help get him past that evil moment. Remember how kind and good he was at this present moment. Moreover, perhaps just this memory alone will keep him from great evil, and he will think better of it and say, Yes, I was kind, brave, and honest then. Let him laugh to himself. It's no matter. A man often laughs at what is kind and good. It just comes from thoughtlessness. But I assure you, gentlemen, that as soon as he laughs, he will say it once in his heart. <coughs> no, it's a bad thing for me to laugh, because one should not laugh at that. So it goes on. Down below, let us never forget one another. I say it again. I give you my word, gentlemen, that for my part, I will never forget any one of you. Each face that is looking at me now, at this moment, I will remember be it even after 30 years, Kolya said to Kart, um, Kartashov just now, he was unkind to him a few minutes earlier, um, that we supposedly do not care to know his existence. It was one of those moments of contempt for Kolya. He said, we don't want to hear what you have to say. But how can I forget that Kart Kartashov exists and that he is no longer blushing now as when he discovered Troy but is looking at me with his nice, kind, happy eyes. 
Gentlemen, my dear gentlemen, let us all be as generous and brave as Lushka, and intelligent, brave, and generous as Kolya, who will be much more intelligent when he grows up a little bit. It ends with him saying to the very last page, Our children, dear friends, do not be afraid of life. A good life is when you do something good and rich. Suddenly the boys let out this exclamation, Hurrah for Karamazov, Kolya proclaimed ecstatically. And memory eternal for the dead boy, Alyosha added again with feeling. Memory eternal, the boy said again. And once again they go, um, um, Hurrah for um, Karamazov, Hurrah for Karamazov. Now remember the Karamazovs at the beginning of the story were um, defamed, degraded, uh, notorious for their badness. The father didn't have a good rep reputation. Ivan didn't. Alyosha was a good boy, but young. And they went through all these trials, and now the book ends with um, two affirmations. One is on re memory, that the boys hold on to these good memories at this stone. It marks a place. The important thing, I don't think the stone is in incidental. Um, our land binds us together. It's our attachments to a land that give us a sense of community. We belong to a place. We're here, not there. We're not, we're not, we're not uprooted. So I think this stone is important. It's a, it's a memorial place. It marks their ties to the earth. To never, no matter what happens, to remember that they're tied together. It gives us a sense of we. We're tied to the earth. So it's an affirmation of this goodness that they share together and it's an affirmation of their memory of this shared moment, okay? Now let me stop with that before we go to my four questions. Um, so we've got the, the, the scenes between Ivan and the devil, we've got the trial scene, and we've got this ending. So any questions you guys have before we go to my, I'd like to hold off on the four questions because I want to get to them, but any any comments or questions about what we've done so far? Fred, yeah. Well, I guess my my perspective on the trial is a little different than yours, and I just like to get your input on it. Mm -hmm. But to me, I, if I understood what you said, you kind of see it as the the failure of reason. And to me, I guess I looked at that. I said it was the failure of the absence of reason. I mean, if you look at if you look at what's going on in Chicago and Portland today, nobody's taken the time to figure out is this really you know what what the press is saying, what the quote Black Lives Matters people are saying. Does that really make sense or not? They're just they're just getting sucked up in the emotion of it all and going along for the ride. And to me. The trial was much the same thing. That nobody really asked why, um, you know, someone else couldn't have been responsible for the murder. They were just, they were just particularly the, you know, the brother. It was just okay. Well, yeah, let's. I agree with you. Let's, you know, let's con condemn him, and you know, just ignored the fact that, you know, all the evidence was circumstantial. There was no actual proof. Right that anything happened and, right. and, and maybe it's just my definition versus yours but 
when I when I think of reason, it's the the logical analysis of the situation and asking yourself, does that really make sense or not? You know, have I have I considered all of the options? And to me, nobody really in the trial, nobody really did that, despite all of the points that the defensive attorney made saying, yep. you know, there's really no real evidence that any crime was committed uh, by Dimitri, but yet, and, and I think if, if I interpret it correctly, the, 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 the audience, if you will, of the trial kind of believed that the defensive attorney made his case, yet the, the jury came back and, and condemned him. Right. So to me, it's really more the absence of reason and 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 getting caught up in the motion the emotion of it all and and ignoring reason and so maybe i'm i'm, I'm missing something that you're saying there in terms of no i let me place. yeah let me wait a minute to, to answer because I, I mean i let me wait because i i don't think i actually don't think we're disagreeing it's where we meet on a fine point and i want to come back to it um because it's wait, wait. Let me. I for, I for, I was going to do this at the beginning of the class, but I forgot. You all got my letter right on the mean. Yes. We've been doing the Odyssey in Seton, and we're dealing with the same sort of question. It's a different story. It's a mythic story. But if you remember Odysseus, wherever he went, he brought problems, and he sort of defined um, um, a departure from the mean, if I can describe it that way. And um, I was giving them Aristotle's definition of, of virtue, which I'm convinced Aristotle got from Homer. There's not a question in my mind, absolutely not. Homer's definition is that um, with respect to anything in life, it could be money, courtesy, you name it, whatever area, um, we are called in the natural order, not the supernatural order, in the natural order, we're called to become perfect at that level. That's our call. The modern world has lost it because of the scientific world and, and the Protestant in America largely fundamentalist. Because the claim of the fundamentalist is we're depraved. That there is no natural goodness. That always stuns me because if you look at a flower, you can see a flower reach its perfection. It'll be a beautiful flower or a dog or a tree or a harvest. or That is, the Greeks gave us this notion of what they called a telos, an end that there's an end to things in the world that implies a perfection. And that's true of the human order. It's more difficult in the human order because we have a free will. We can go against ourselves in a way a flower can't. But the point I want to make here is that remember that the mean, the perfection of a virtue, rests between two extremes. And that mean varies from person to person because we all have different temperaments. Some people are better at being courage. Some people are better saving money, you know, it depends on what the area is. But the point I wanted to make in that note is that the, the struggle for us in the natural order is to become virtuous, to struggle, to answer those extremes that each one of us has concerning different things, whatever they happen to be. And I gave the example of facing dangers because it's, it's, a, it's a constant in our lives, whatever the it can be facing our boss or our spouse or our children or a friend. And remember, the, 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 the virtue, according to Aristotle, is 
um, putting yourself at risk to save yourself. It's exactly what Christ said when he said, unless you fall to the ground. The, the, the paradox, the paradoxical nature of, of facing dangers is, in facing dangers, we have to put our lives at risk in order to save them. We have to be willing to die to ourselves to save them. And it followed from then, if you remember, that the two extremes were rashness and cowardice. And the point that I wanted to make is one that I've made before. You, I, We've done this before, I think. A according to the rash man, how does the virtuous man look? Can he see the virtue in him? No, he can't. Because the rash man being rash, he thinks the virtuous man is a coward. Does the coward see the virtuous man as he is? No, because according to him and his cowardice, he thinks the virtuous man is rash. Right? It's only the virtuous man that can see either. So what we see is there's a blindness with respect to anything we do that is a lack of a good reason. Fred, if I can go there. A lack of a good reason that because of the relationship between our, our intellects and our wills. So that anybody who's not in the mean, who doesn't, who doesn't improve the disposition of their souls, they will lack a certain sight. There's a lot they won't see. They'll be blind. What do we see when you go into the courtroom? Blindness everywhere. Everybody's got it wrong. The same thing with respect to money. If you're dealing with the virtue of generosity or money or time or giving or whatever you say. Um, the, the two extremes with respect to, to giving are being a spendthrift, wasting, or being niggardly, stingy, miserly. And the virtue is being generous, knowing when to give, how to give, when, because sometimes people can overgive. They can be too giving in ways that's not good for other people. Or you can not give when you should. But um, to the spendthrift, how does the generous man look? He looks like he's stingy. To the stingy man, how does the generous man look? He looks like he's wasteful. Are you all following? The people at both extremes, whatever the circumstances, will always not see something. So there's this um, intrinsic link between what we do with our wills, the rectitude, the goodness of our wills, and the way we use our minds. Is everybody... So saying, so, Julie, go ahead. Mean, Sorry? If we stay in the mean, we'll be more likely to view, to see the virtue in the person with that tendency to that extreme, and see the virtue in the person with the other tendency toward the other extreme, um, versus if we're if we are extreme ourselves, it's more difficult to see the virtue in, in right. the other polar yeah. Right. And just remember, we're talking about degrees, you know, away from um, a natural perfection. Remember, this is in the line of natural perfection, not supernatural perfection, because that comes in with Christ. With Christ, you're talking about supernatural virtues, not natural virtues. So we're still Old Testament at this point. Still what? Old Testament. Old Testament. Um, pre right pre Christian pagan Old Testament yeah. Go ahead. Oh, um. That might lead to my question. 
um, and I don't even know if, how to phrase it, but when you were saying, is there, you know, in an Old Testament view um, of the state cannot come up with a consequence threatening enough to change a man's conscience, but God's wrath is the only thing, I guess, threatening enough to change his conscience. Is that what, is that what you were getting at? No, 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 no. I, what I, I was trying to, wait, I was trying to work off the opening chapters in Brothers when all the people were meeting and they were arguing about whether, they, they were taken on this question of church and state. And you know in the West, in the West, we, recognize, we acknowledge the division between those two powers. In Brothers, the argument from either side was either the state will absorb the church and deal with criminal behavior the way it does, imposing punishments, or the church will absorb the state and deal with it in another way. And you remember that Zosimov's argument was it won't be until the church absorbs the state that they will be able to correct a man's conscience. Um, I mean, it, he didn't follow it through, but what he was saying, it's, it, it's only when you're more compassionate and um, you identify with a sinner that you can help him change. And even, but the hard side of that was he said um, that it's only when you can pose the threat of excommunication that you can present a threat great enough that will make a man reform. But I didn't even use the language that you used, the, you know, the Yahweh with the wrath, and that's, that's, a, you're, that's another world. I mean, that's the Old Testament. I was trying to stay within the language of the men in the... Uh, when, I, when I made the general presentation in the last couple of weeks, I was trying to suggest that according to the pre-Christian world, and even Christian, man stands in a created universe it's ordered by God. There's a certain order to the universe. There's a certain order to our souls. It's only when we learn to order ourselves, to bring ourselves into conformity with that order that we become just. Because the whole focus of the Old Testament is justice, not love. Um, when Christ comes into the world, he said, um, we have to love. And the point that I've been trying to make for a long time is that is that Christ would have never undermined his father or disobeyed him. We always have to work for justice in keeping with the Father, but we have to bring to it a love that Christ has shown us. We can't keep dividing the two, which is what typically people do. That's a that was a general presentation, you know, it was just a way of trying to enlarge the perspective. That helps me understand more because I you know, I kept thinking well you know, I always thought it was God's kindness that leads people to repentance, and you know that is the compassionate vein, and 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 that's what um, you were saying that he wasn't finished in his comment. Sorry, um, what? Who wasn't? Sorry, who wasn't? Uh, when you said um, that the state could not change a man's conscience, but if this church absorbed the state, that it could, but he didn't finish it out. Right, right. Yeah, it's one of the, it's one of the questions, yeah. By, by kindness and compassion. Yeah, I mean, St. Thomas, here's where I want to go. I mean, I want to get to this um, shortly, but remember St. Thomas, we've talked about this a lot, and, and, and actually you were probably away during that time, um, but in the last since we did Dante and the Reformation and Milton together, we've been dealing, we dealt a lot with this, and, and Shakespeare, we dealt a lot with this question of justice and mercy. 
St. Thomas's comment and what we learn from Dante, which is the Catholic Church, I mean the Divine Comedy is the Catechism, is that um, mercy without justice is a disaster. I mean, if you keep showing pity to people or trying to be kind to them when they're sitting, you're just enabling. What you're doing is encouraging because we don't have the help we need. That, that's why this whole question about virtue in the Odyssey and here in the Divine her brothers, to me, is so important. Anybody have a response to Fred? I want to get back to the the courtroom and anybody have let's take it one at a time. Anybody have any questions about the or comments on the the uh, meeting between Yvonne and the devil? Can we go back to the trial? Sure. Let me just take anybody have any questions on the devil and Yvonne? If not, we'll go to the trial, but let me just wait a second in case. Everybody's blacked out. Where did you all go? I've got initials on the screen and no faces. Let's go to the trial. Fred was raising a question. Fred, help me out if I'm not doing just to this. It is, is he was saying that he, um, he wasn't quite sure he saw things the way I did, and he was expressing a difference in saying that it wasn't, um, how do you put it? I was saying that nobody got it. He was saying that it was a, a lack of reason, that, well, that, that people were letting their emotion, people were letting their emotions get in the way so they weren't using reason, something along those lines. Yes, that was what I was saying. Yeah. I mean, nobody, no one ever really considered the possibility that Svartikov could have been, you know, they basically came down to two people, Dmitri or Svartikov, that could have committed the crime. And yet no one was interested in pursuing the fact that Svartikov might have been the culprit. Right, right. Because the, the emotion, the tide, if you will, right. was that Dmitri was the culprit and nobody ever stopped to reconsider whether that made any sense, whether right. to reason it out as to whether does it really make sense that Smirnikov right would never have been the culprit because if you had dealt into his past, there were plenty of you know possibilities for why he would want to have committed the crime. And motives. And motives. To me, yeah. it was a classic example of emotion and you know, getting on the bandwagon with everyone else and, and you know, being convinced that Dimitri was the culprit without any consideration to the fact that all of that was purely circumstantial and there was no true evidence that he was actually guilty. Yeah. Carl, go ahead. Did you have, you wanted to get back to the trial. What's your, you have got, you've got a response. Well, I wanted to start by saying that I wasn't convinced that both sides got it wrong. Um, yes, the, the prosecution certainly did get it wrong, but the defense, um, especially in the long list of things where there were assumptions made by the prosecution, let's go with that assumption, and the prosecution would say um, the rational man would take this path, and then based on this path, this is what obviously had to, right. to transpire. Right. And the defense took that you know, and he, he bifurcated at a point and said, no, the, the rational man didn't just have to only do what you suggest, or what the, what the prosecution suggested. The, the rational man could say, 
it's something else. And that something else at times was exactly what did happen. And to the extent that um, they did nail it, it's exactly what happened, but didn't put it together in a, um, you know, my, my, uh, my client is totally innocent. They clearly, um, I think, established a case where you could abandon every single one of the prosecution's points. And that in itself is, goes a long way in um, proving not guilty. It doesn't bring in a, a sixth man or woman. It doesn't solve who did it. But I think it went a long way to indicate that the defense's client didn't do it. Mm -hmm. that, was, that was my take on it. Yeah. I probably would have been swayed like the audience was. You know, by saying I, you know, I think the defense did a great job, but I didn't think they got it all wrong either. Yeah, Jeannie, where are you in this? Uh, I, I think I, I pretty much agree with what Carl just said in terms of um, the. I think the defense did a good job, in my mind, of proving that it didn't make sense or it wasn't reasonable to convict Dimitri but the defense did not say who committed the crime they just said Dimitri didn't but, but is that the defense's job no right right what the defense right. is supposed to do right. is just right. say my my client didn't do it you know I don't care who right. did it I'm not here to prove who did it right. I'm just here to prove that my client didn't do it yeah and that's I think the defense did did that pretty well. No, I do too. Um, the the the, the, the principle the principle of of law at work in a courtroom is beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm -hmm. And if the defense could raise questions, raise doubts about the evidence pointed to D Dimitri's being the murderer, then you'd have to come away saying the prosecutor didn't do it or he had to prove it and the prosecutor didn't. What do you do at the end of the defense attorney's closing speech when he says he's guilty and even if he is guilty, um, if we send him to prison, assuming, because he said, if he's guilty, so he's in one sense saying he killed him, it would, be, it, it, would be, it would be a mistake to send him to Siberia because it would turn him into a hardened criminal the only answer would be to show him mercy. Jeannie, what's your response to that? Well, I kind of agree with that oh, in God. principle, but that's not what a defense oh, attorney is supposed to do. Um, he's just supposed to prove that his client can't be found guilty, and then he's not supposed to, to say, but even if he is guilty, we shouldn't punish him. Um, I think the defense... It, it didn't make sense to me with the way that I understand the legal system to work, unless that's the way it worked in Russia at that time. I don't know. Yeah. But Suzanne, can you all hold on for a second? Suzanne just said... What did Doug I I was so disgusted with the defense attorney for saying that because he just pulled the rug out from under himself. It's Jeez. like he presented this case... But he didn't really believe it, so since I don't really believe it, I'm asking for mercy. It's like, give me a break. Wait, and, and the whole question, because I'm going to go back to Birch and Venice in a minute because I want to get there. If you offer mercy without doing justice, what's the danger for the person 
whose actions are in question. I mean, we've been talking about enabling forever. You know, you keep letting people... I mean, this is really a serious question with me with Dostoevsky. And I want to, I want to get back to Merchant in a minute because it just seemed to me he took, he took a, a case that was rationally grounded and did an okay job and then blew it away the way just Suzanne described. Yeah, I and agree it, with that because to me this was not a justice versus mercy situation. This was a a justice situation that clearly was not proven to get the guilt was not proven. Yeah. And the whole point should have been that there is absolutely no evidence, concrete evidence, that my client committed this crime. And in that sense you cannot you cannot convict him. Yeah. Um, just because mercy stuff, I right? Mean, I, right. I get the version of Venice and the mean and mercy and justice and trying to find that mean, but to me, this had really nothing to do with the mean until the defensive, the defense attorney brought it into the equation. It was there is no, if you're going to do justice to my client, there is no evidence that is absolute that supports that he committed. Or the crime. beyond beyond a reasonable doubt. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yes. If so there's me, no proof, he walks. And emotion took over. Right. Yes. You have, you have to have evidence me? beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the... Can, that's can the, you hear me? Yes, go ahead, Marcy. I heard you. If you don't have the evidence, he walks. Right, right, right. Um, Barbara, where are you on this? Can you unmute your, can you unmute your thing? There's an unmute button. I'm not sure. Did yeah, I yes, we hear you. It's good. I'm looking from 30,000 feet. What I see is that um, bringing perspective and our own experience, the justice system, even the very best, is flawed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's no, no, unless you have a confession, you just really... Um, it's a flawed system, but that's, and I have missed so many of these discussions that I don't, um, I, I can't be very specific. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think just as you'd agree with you that, I mean, we do the best we can and know that we will fail. I mean, because it's an imperfect, anybody else before I, but I want to, I want to make a brief response to, to Mary Jane, did you have something? Can I just. Can you hear me? Sure, yes, go ahead. Well, I was just thinking uh, neither neither side did a very good job, I didn't think, neither lawyer, but the jury was filled with people that hated him. So he was going to be he was going to be guilty. Yeah, yeah. Good. So good. That's good. all I had to say. No, it's good. It's good. It's good. Prejudices are everywhere. Let me let me respond to Fred just briefly. And then I'd like to get to these these four questions um, that I asked last week because um, I really would like to spend some time on it. And Bob, when you said when you go into the courtroom, everybody's blind, I immediately thought of Lady Justice with her pans and her blindfold, <laughs> you know, and I thought, well, there you have it. She's right there on the wall carved into the, you know, masonry or whatever. Uh, so not only everybody, but even the 
you know, building is blind. So. Well, I, I, to me, it's two different blindnesses. I think that I, I love that image because what it's saying, and it's interesting that it's a woman for me, that in any decisions rendered in a courtroom, we have to get past our emotions. We can't let emotions. And, be, and the one thing that you can say about the courtroom is everybody's, I mean, along Fred's lines, everybody's being led by their emotions and coming to wrong conclusions. The blindness that I'm talking about is different because their blindness is caused by these prejudices and it's a different thing. In a courtroom, I, I think Portia is a really good example. She didn't let her feelings for her husband get in the way. She had to, she had to work with the law. She, she put herself away. You know, she couldn't let her, her, her care for her husband or she couldn't let any of that affect how she handled that court. She, in some ways, she's a per perfect image of what that image of, you know, justice is. But let me, let me respond to Fred for just a second and then I want to go to these questions. Fred, I don't think we're disagreeing. It's, it's, a, it's a little bit about, it's like looking at half empty, half full. We're, we're, I think we're together there, but looking at it differently. Um, what I'm saying is not that reason's absent, because I don't believe that. Um, what I'm saying is that the way in which, because the one thing, the one positive, I think the one truthful thing you say about the whole, the whole courtroom scene is that the, the, the two attorneys do everything they can in their use of reason. So we're watching reason be as active as it can be. Both of them are being reasonable. They're making arguments. They're not just blowing up. I mean, when I look at the political act landscape today and watch people engage in political discussions, I'm not watching reason or virtue at work. I'm watching people get hysterical, and I'm watching people using reason to vent disordered emotions. I think the two attorneys in the courtroom scene have their emotions pretty well under control, and both of them are making rational arguments. The concern that I have, that I, that I take, I think, to the heart of Dostoevsky, it's one of the questions I have about him, is that at least as it shows in the devil scene and in the courtroom scene, Dostoevsky seems to be saying that even if people use reason, because I, I don't believe they're just giving into emotions, the defense attorneys are rational men. They're making rational arguments, both sides. So reason is at work, but it never gets to the right answer. So we're left when we come out of the courtroom scene, we're left with these ironies that neither one of them got it, and yet they're both convinced, or fairly convinced, that they've, they see what they see. And the reason that's important for me, so I would say, reason is active and alive, but it cannot get to the truth for Dostoevsky. Um, it, it, it misses. What we learn from Dostoevsky is that human beings have these great passions, all the characters, but reason by itself is incapable of getting to the truth. We see that over and over and over again. Now, even if there are differences, just allow it for a minute because I want to watch our time. Let me go to the last questions that I have to see if we can, because I want to get this to Portia and Merchant of Venice, because you've got Shakespeare and Dostoevsky in courtroom scenes, okay? But let me take them in order. Um, does anybody want to make a comment on my first question? If we see Dostoevsky's brothers as prophetic, does it show us something about modern progressive movements in America, the tendency in us to move away from 
a capitalistic regime towards socialism, that is towards a utopian world, because that's exactly the direction Russia's going at the end of the century when Dostoevsky writes this. They're just a step away from communism. So my question is, is there something prophetic? Does it show us something about the way we use reason? Us as an American character, is there something for us to learn about ourselves reading brothers? I know that's a pretty broad question, but I'd, I'd be glad to take a minute. If nobody has a response, we'll go on to the next one. But Because I look at it and I see, I see ourselves a lot in that story. But you guys go ahead. I, I would agree with you because what you know, and and I think your your comment about the the defensive the, the defense attorney and and the prosecutor you know re relate to what we see going on today because and I, I'm I'm going to try to stay away from political opinion but you see everyone capable of using quote reason to justify their position, whether right. it's the Democrat, the Democratic leadership, or the Republican leadership. And and I, I'm not sure I understand, I'm not sure I know what the the answer is, but the you, you can look at each each case and, and, and they pull the data out that supports their personal yes. position. Yes, yes. And yes. and they yes. argue it to infinity. But the only, and, and you see people following because they don't, they don't bother to do their own analysis. They, they listen to the presented analysis and say, I'm in. And the only way to really ferret out what reality is, is, is to go in and instead of being carried away by somebody else's collection of the data and presentation, is to go in and do the data analysis yourself and do a, you know, a mean analysis to decide, you know, what makes the most sense. And I don't see people doing Porsche's exercise where you go in and you look at each one's presentation of reason and the data and, and, and doing an analysis that says, you know, where is the flaws? Or where's so, the truth and where's I justice? Yeah. I, think, yeah. I think we're we're drowning in that. I mean, every day you go through and look at the media, which my job, unfortunately, requires me to do. And everyone has a really strong case for what they believe. But if you go in and look at the specifics of that presentation, it's flawed. Yep. And, and you've got to be willing to do the, the time and the effort understand the difference let me I, I just want to I want to just make a brief comment and I want to go to other people because I want to hear your anybody else's response it one of the things that strikes me when I think about what's going on in our world is that for most people there's no longer such thing as truth if it is it's relative and there's a flawed sense of justice I mean, they don't have any. They don't have a sense of justice of the kind that we're talking about when we're talking about Aristotle or Plato. Or, um, justice is a convention. Um, there are radical different assumptions on those who are conservative and those who are left. Um, one's based in reality that there are standards. The other's utopian. They've got a vision. They cannot come together on it. There's no. There's no common ground. 
We don't believe that there's a truth. We don't believe in justice. Justice is, um, let, let's say for a left who's a Marxist, is overcoming an oppressed system. I mean, there are all these theology or, or theories, ideologies that direct people's thoughts. But objectively, the belief that there is something there that we should conform ourselves to does not exist. The modern world thinks we can create this world. It's relative. The force of our own wills, um, the forces that we bring to bear on it. But the idea that there's something actually there and we have to struggle to get to it is another thing. But let me hear, go to the rest of you. Anybody else on this, anybody else quickly on this question? Are you guys, when you, when you finish, when you put the brothers down and you thought about what Dostoevsky was revealing about Russia then, these Western influences and its and their influence on what was going on in Russia, were you aware of any ways in which that was prophetic for us in our age today? Before we leave, well, in our world today, and I don't know that this is exactly what you're talking about. When I look at our world today, uh, I mean, I see such a lack of leadership across the board. That I just see chaos, yeah. and really, since I I can't see a lot uh, see leadership, you know, I really don't see, um, you know, I can't discern what way I think the country will go. Yeah. Let me take the second question because I want to be careful of time. I'm I'm so committed to. <laughs> not being late with you guys anymore. Second question is, what's Dostoevsky's view of the differences between men and women? How does, how does Dostoevsky look at women? I know that's a general question, but at, at, at a level of generality, what's his view of the differences between men and women? Men do the rule making and the women provide sex. <laughs> That's just the way it is. Back then, of course, it was much worse than it is today. But back, remember, remember, Marcy, we're in 1860, so we're not too far away, but. Wait, the sex was much worse than it is today? <laughs> no, I'm saying that men made the rules and that women were sexual objects. Marcy. They, they supported the men. Marcy, stay in the book. For right now, look at the book and what men and women do and draw conclusions from the way women act and from the way men act. Because we don't see a lot of sex going on, but we do see a lot, a lot going on that seems to, to show similarities between men. Wait, 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 wait. Let me finish my question. There's a, there's a lot of similarities between what men do as men, and there's some similarities among women in what they do as women. So I'm asking, what's the differences when we look at the way men act and women in this book? And um, what, what, are those, what do they tell us about the difference between men and women? Well, I wasn't talking about the sex act. I'm saying there were two levels and that men made the rules and the women 
supported their men, and they were known as sexual objects, they were sort of the furniture that men preferred, and when they wanted a new set of furniture, they would get a different woman. But I'm not talking about sex itself, just saying there were two levels. Yeah. Men read everything, and the women were there and were sort of moved around by the men when they wanted to, and the woman had to support the man or he would chuck her away and get another one. Let me, let me if I can t tie this down a little bit, let me... Let me let, wait, let me... I want to I see if I can root this a little bit more in the text. Early on, we see the men arguing with each other intellectually, let's just say. We saw the difference between, so I'm asking, I'm asking what Dostoevsky's view is, not any of ours. I'm asking what Dostoevsky's view of men and women, not ours. So wait, 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 Fred, let me, let me, please, let me finish. I want, I want to root this because I know this is a touchy area and I, and I, Marcy's expressed something. I want to try to get us to the book. So give me a minute, please. So in the opening, we watched the men making arguments with each other. When we went from there to the women, we saw the women making these confessions. There were radical differences between the way the men and women were presented in the opening. When Grushenka and um, Katerina meet for the first time, um, Grushenka, no, Katerina is enamored and, and treats her in a flattering way. You remember when Grushenka comes out from, from behind that partition, she is very sweet and then suddenly she turns vicious because she says she's not going to do what Katrina wants. Because remember earlier, Katrina had approached Dmitri for money because her father was in danger of losing his life and his job. So it, it put her in a position of neediness to him and it, it actually humiliated him because, because he had to humiliate himself, he had to lower himself for her. So the two women are both attracted to Dimitri. When we see the two of them together, Katrina seems very flattering, but once Grushenka says she's not going to do what Katrina wants, they get vicious. They get really mean and turn on each other. At the very end of the book, after everything that happens, we see Katrina spiteful numerous times. It's almost as if she can't be anything other than spiteful often. Um, when she comes to the trial, she, she says nothing against Dimitri until Ivan's life is at stake and she's become fond of Ivan. When she thinks his life is incriminated or his life is in danger, she goes back on the stand and produces the letter. So it's partly spiteful, it's partly to protect him, um, Ivan. In the jail scene later when the two women meet, um, Grushenka is asked to forgive Katrina. And Grushenka won't do it. She refuses to forgive her. So in numerous scenes, we watch the women acting emotionally in spite. If the men, so in anger, the women are shown to be spiteful, often. Um, Lisi does the same thing with um, Alyosha. When her pride is at stake and she thinks that she may be humiliated because she might love him and he may not love her, she gets spiteful. She turns in and rejects him. You remember they get past it, they're engaged, and at the end of the story, for some reason, she turns away from him and she slams her finger in the door. She's so angry at herself. Um, when the men get angry, they tend to, to get angry with each other in a spirit of honor. 
they will do battle, they have duels, um, Dimitri's going to have that duel, remember, with the soldier, there are soldiers at issue, um, he throws away his pistol, um, so we're, there's lots of scenes in which Dostoevsky shows men doing certain things and, um, and women doing certain things. Anybody who wants to add any other examples, go ahead. But my, my basic question is, what is Dostoevsky's view? How does he render the Russian man, the Russian male, and the Russian woman? Is the Russian like based on, if his actions are based on honor, are the woman's based on survival? Or is she just more capricious or more um, ephemeral in her um, ups and downs of who she's going to be friends with that day? Anybody else? Jeannie, don't disappear on us here. We need you right now. She, anybody else? Anybody? Francis. Bob, um, the women seem vindictive and malicious. And the men, oh, well, I, 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 I can't say they seem honorable because in so many instances they weren't honorable. <laughs> so I'm not quite sure what to say in regards to that. But yeah. they think they are, right? Well, yeah, but I don't know that the women think they're vindictive and manipulative either. Good point. They probably really think they're doing this for survival. Mm. Right? <laughs> no, I don't know. The women don't have the women don't have the opportunity to express their anger, frustration, hatred, whatever, um, in a duel. Um, True. That's just not and it's not like they even wish for that. It's just, it's, it's not an option. It's not culturally possible. Um, so they have to deal with their anger and their hatred in another way. And the only way that Dostoevsky shows them doing it is in spite. The interesting thing there, I mean, we don't see the men dueling a lot. We see it with Zosimin um, when he was younger um, and Dmitri. I mean, gets into fights with this, um, the guy. It's a, there's a, a direct ultimate issue with the men in a duel because it means one of you is going to die. Right. Um, let me just make a generalization here and, and go on. It seemed, remember, I, this is really not a, not a small thing for me. I would say, generally speaking, the, the men are more inclined, when they get angry, they're more inclined to get angry over a sense of honor. When men get in their intellects, like Ivan, and he has to suddenly question himself, he goes through a period of real change, but I don't see Ivan getting into a fight, say, the way Dimitri... Dimitri's the center of the book in some sense, because he shows, he shows the tendency of man to act for honor in, in a world that's losing it. The, um, Ivan belongs to a modern world that's, that's um, based on the intellect, and he's losing it. But I'd say, generally speaking, the men are given more inclined to a sense of honor and shame if they don't live up to it. When the the 
when whatever is going on with women to press them in whatever it is they want or are threatened with loss, they're going to lose something they want, like Katrina with Dmitri or Ivan or Yushchenko with Dmitri. They're more inclined to be spiteful. You use the word vicious and um, emotion. They're, they're, their anger is more inclined to, to be indirect. And, and when it gets open, it can get mean, as it does between Grushenka and, and uh, Katrina. Let me leave it at there, even if there's a difference, because I want to get to Portia. For this reason, it seems to me when you look at the human soul for Dostoevsky, people are far, and it goes to this earlier question, Frank, I mean, Fred, so I want to hear your mind on it, or everybody's, but um, in the West, in the West, if you know anything about Shakespeare's comedies, and we read, we read Chaucer, you know, we went through this, that um, with men, by and large, in Chaucer are, I, I call them scumbags. I mean, they're, they're not very honorable men. The one person who is really honorable is the knight, and what defines him is his sense of honor. Where the other men come in line, they do it because they're honorable, like the husband in the Franklin's Tale with um, Dorjan. He's an honorable husband. When men are good, they're in Chaucer's world, they're good because they're honorable, they're virtuous. In Chaucer's world, the, the greater number of people who are virtuous are the women, over and over and over again. In, and in the West, in the West, sorry, in the West, remember, we've got a tradition, a philosophic tradition of virtue. It's been alive since pre-Christian days. And Mary is the image of virtue in Christianity. And the, and, the, and the principal virtue of Mary is obedience. She, she conforms to, she has faith in a higher power. It goes back to my, the observation I was making a minute ago where in, in Dostoevsky's courtroom, or in the modern courtroom in America, there's no sense that there is a is, a real, that we have to conform to. That's not true for Mary. For Mary, there was. She gave her obedience, her will, to something greater than herself. It made her good. Um, she was obedient with Joseph. In that passage where they come to get Christ and they take Christ away, the description is, this is God. We're talking about God. The description is, and he went home with his parents and obeyed them. That's God obeying humans. So obedience is a is a is not a small thing in the West. And one of the major um, agents, instruments of that obedience is woman. So the image of womanhood in the West is radically different from what it is in the East. The one of the central, the you, we can't talk about wisdom in the ancient world without identifying it with woman. Athena is the goddess of wisdom. It's the woman who's the wise, the, the carrier of wisdom. Mary's described as wisdom herself. She is, the, she is the apostle of the apostles. The men in their egos get carried away. They want to do whatever they want to do. Um, so if you, if you look at Shakespeare's plays, if you know anything about his plays, almost every one of the comedies has as its central figure a woman. And every woman is in a different regime, a different problem, a different manner, and yet every one of them shows a wisdom that the men don't know. We've, we've seen Portia together. We did Portia with Merchant of Venice, and I think we did All's Well. And you know my, I mean, if you look at Helena, she's an extraordinary woman. 
She fulfills all those conditions and she does it in love. She's not obdurate. She's not stubborn. She's not mean. She's not, she doesn't feel sorry for herself because things are asked of her. She's obedient. She meets all those conditions in love. She's perfectly obedient. So there's this tradition in the West running from pre-Christian times with Athena. In the Old Testament, wisdom is likened to a feminine figure. Because men are too given to power and wisdom is fragile. It's, it's threatened because men and their power, or, or even more and more modern women, want to abuse it. They want to take that power and use it for themselves. So in the West, we have this strong tradition of, of equality running through women. If you look at Dostoevsky, um, I mean, all the women are spiteful. We do not see a woman get close to what Portia does in Merchant of Venice. Not close. Not close. The women in Dostoevsky's world are, are stuck in their passions. Re reason is not active. It goes to my point, Fred, that, that people use reason all the time in Dostoevsky. It's not like it's not there. It is. But it, there's a lack of a sense of a virtue that virtues, that, that is, to me it's platonic, that there's, there's a lack of a sense that virtue is possible in the natural world in the natural world. And that's one of the things that has distinguished the West from the East all along. The tradition of virtue of philosophy, the presence of philosophy in the natural order. So let me ask it another way. Um, if you get to the courtroom, I mean, let's take two courtroom scenes, put them next to each other. What, it, what happens in Merchant of Venice to make it possible for justice to be actually realized there when it's not in Brothers. Is everybody following that? We come out of Merchant of Venice realizing that the justice has been done. We come out of Brothers aware that justice has not been done. Dimitri is going to go to Serbia. He's going to serve. I mean, we know that he's going to escape. Siberia. But the court, Siberia, but the court missed it. They didn't attain justice. So my question is, what's going on in the courtroom in Merchant of Venice that makes it different from what goes on in the courtroom in Russia? What's the difference between those two worlds? Well, Bob, in my mind, there's an intellectual honesty in Portia that takes place in the Merchant of Venice that is absence of the Brothers Karamazov. Now, whether that's the, you know, the love component that Christ brings, I, I don't really know how to put a, a, a terminology on it, but there, there, there is a, a willingness basically to open, open one's mind to the opposition's position to an understanding of what is really at stake and making it you know, and trying to find a, a judgment based on that, which, you know, is is absent today that we used to see in the past. You know, there's, in, in, in the court, which I see a lot of what's going on today, is people are just running off with whatever, whatever fixation they have on what they think justice is. Yeah. And in Porsche's case, there was, an intellectual capacity to 
ferret out what what real justice was, not what everybody thought it was, but what it really was. Yeah. And what you call that, I'm not really sure anymore. But to me, that's the part that's that's that was present in the Merchant of Venice, and it's absent a yep. lot in yep. what we see going on today. Yeah. Let me offer. I mean, let me try to answer that. And I would, I would. I mean, I would really encourage all of you to get a copy of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. It was Porsche's Bible. If you read the section on deliberative justice, deliberative justice, there's um, there's different forms of um, what's the punitive? It's called what? Um, C.S. Lewis made the defense of it. Um, but anyway, if you read the section on deliberative justice. You, you said, I don't know what it's called. Shakespeare would have called it. Plato would have called it. Aristotle would have called it the mean. What Porsche is facing is when you've got two opposite positions in a courtroom, you have to find the truth as it lies somewhere between. And what Shakespeare makes clear in that play is that she finds it. Irrespective, independent of any love she feels for her husband or She's got to step outside of her attachments to her husband or anything. She's, she's got to be just to the Christians and the Jew when they're both making claims that are going to be destructive if either one of them wins. She's got to find that mean between those two extremes. That is, she's got to reconcile opposing parts. That's called distributive justice. Now, this is, I mean, this is, you know, if you, I don't want to do it mathematically because in mathematics it's going to get killed. But let's say there's these two extremes. In one, in one, in one case, the justice may appear here. It's not an arithmetical mean. It's not a matter of mathematics. It's a matter of the truth and real justice. But the point I want to make here is, is that's possible in Shakespeare's world. That's a world, by the way, I think we've lost. It's not in Dostoevsky's world. And that's what intellectual honesty. That there is a truth, a justice to be real. I'm sorry, say it. What? Oh, I said, is Jill? that what Solomon had? Sorry? Is that what Solomon had? Yeah, right. Yes, right. 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 Oh, wait, and isn't he the one when the two women came and said, it's my baby and mine, and he said... I mean, it takes a certain wisdom, and, and remember, what because I'm going back to the classical virtues, because it's something the modern world has simply lost, I mean, and to our cost, it's destroying us, it's absolutely destroying us. Remember, prudence, temperance, justice, endurance, those are the natural virtues, and credit goes to your point. Can a man use his reason well if his will isn't good, if he's not virtuous? If a man is virtuous, he has a good will, he's going to see better than people at the extremes. Portia grew up, cultivated, I mean, remember, for her education, to learn to be just, to struggle to find the mean. So um, prudence means under what circumstances, under what conditions, where, why. So justice can differ from one situation to another, but the wise person will be the one who will be able to reconcile those different positions. We see, that in, we see that in the West because we have a strong philosophic... We did until the modern world. We had a strong realist philosophy behind us that was compatible with our religious faith. That's where we left off with Dante and Shakespeare that brought us up to the modern world. It was the, 
It was the dovetailing of those two traditions that gave us the richness of the West. Remember, when we entered into a Russian world, we entered into a world that was going to be arbitrarily changed overnight without the benefit of centuries of a living tradition. And so we've got these dislocations, these um, a failure to try to reconcile. On what basis? They don't know. It's not a part of their life. I think what Dostoevsky has given us is, a, I believe it's a, pre a prophetic image of our modern world, but it also makes me aware of the differences between the West and the East, and, and I believe what was lost at the Renaissance, 16th, 17th century. With the Reformation, we enter a Platonic world. In Dostoevsky's Russia, we're in a Platonic world. If you go back to the diagrams that I showed you, um, reason is undercut, the will is undercut, and we're not left with justice at the end of Brothers. We're left with um, Dmitri wanted to suffer, planning to escape, but a legal system that's a travesty. That's a travesty. Um, we've, we've entered the modern world, and when I, when I read Dostoevsky and I think about our own world in America today, it's, <laughs> you know, it's, um, there are just so many similarities. Anyway, um, my last question, just very briefly, we've got one minute. The end was a great appeal to memory. What does that mean? We've talked about this before, this, this, this theme of um, anamnesis. You know, wanting to recall. We did it through the Divine Comedy. To recover what was lost. To go back in the past. Remember? Dante has to... Boethius! Lady, late, there, wait, there it is again. Lady philosophy. It's not a man, it's a woman. Lady philosophy. The image of wisdom in the West is feminine. Lady philosophy says you have to go back to beginnings and you have to see your ends. Anamnesis means forgetting, recovering memory. This book ends not in the present. It's saying when hard times come, look back to the past. Here's my final question. What's the difference between looking at Christ as a memorial, a commemorative moment to remember him in the past, and Christ in the Eucharist now? What's the difference? Because both have an anamnesis aspect. What's the difference? Well, let me just answer briefly. They're both commemorative. They both look back to the past. One says that we're commemorating a past, an act that was done in the past that's forever done. The other says, no, we're commemorating a past that we participate again every time we take the Eucharist so that we are constantly brought into the present. Now set that against Dostoevsky's ending. Not a small difference. Is everybody following or is that too abstract? I've been saying from the beginning, particularly with the, with the Odyssey, with T.S. Eliot, not before, not after, that, that the great call of Christianity is to not get buried in the past and not let the past take us over or to escape the present by looking, wishing for things. It's to always live 
Remember the lines in uh, uh, Murder in the Cathedral? The day, the day, the day, the day. Remember? Are we in, are we in the day today in the way that Christ has called us? Not living in our past, not living in a not yet. Are we here with God in the present moment? Any closing comments? Any last thoughts before we leave? That was a hopeful conclusion. Yeah, it was. Hopeful contrast. Yeah. Did you hear? It was really interesting. I, I agree. I really. In fact, I've I've been read. I've been writing a chapter, and I, my comment on Dostoevsky is that it, is that he never sentimentalizes, and I said that with that ending in mind. And then last week, Karen, when she came on, and I said, "So, how did everybody? What was everybody's response to the end?" And Karen's response was a little bit like, um, "What's the old house on the prairie, or what's the name of that old? What is it?" Little House on the Prairie. Little House on the Prairie. And I just laughed because she was saying a little bit sentimental. <laughs> I think it is. I think it, I mean, I, to me, it's, it's, it gives away those, I don't want to call them those weak spots in Dostoevsky. With all of his strength, because I, 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 I so admire him, but there are these little things um, that it is hopeful and we're meant to feel hope. Um, Bob? Yes. This is Carl. Before you release us all, could I ask maybe a minute or two of indulgence? I have a one-item hand-pull question. Go ahead. It's a technical one yeah. that I'm trying to solve, and it has to do with the sound on this particular video conferencing. Um, I have dealt with five different platforms on video conferencing since the pandemic started. And this one, Microsoft Teams, is absolutely the worst on wow. audio. Wow. Um, and the question I have is, when we started this conference, Bob, in your prayer, about half of it was either garbled or missing. Wow. Oh, I, wow. I just, I could not hear it, I could not understand it. Wow. After that, the Gerald Manley Hopkins poem that you read had several spaces in it and distortion. Wow. Generally, the audio that I'm experiencing is got rattle, um, what an audio engineer would call wow. clipping, wow. crackle, distortion, wow. Wow. scratchiness. And I wondered, by a show of hands, do any of the rest of you experience this? If you do, would you kind of raise your hand and let me know? And if you don't, okay. I, I know what I know what to do next. Thank you very much. No, I'm glad you took the time. Mike told me just I I it's interesting that um, Joey said Joey said a little bit so and so it sounds to me like it it's varying. But one of the things Mike said and I keep forgetting I'm just not good at this, Carl. He said if you mute everybody on mine, if I mute everybody, that it tends to improve it. And once discussions get going, I think. I forget, and I think everybody else forgets to mute, and it, apparently that has an effect. But I'm sorry for that. I, I, I don't know what to do. Well, let me just say, uh, if I, I, maybe it's the computer, uh, but this is a, a brand new one, and uh, an, an Envy, and uh, from Hewlett Packard, I've heard you five by five. Uh, 
coming through. So. Okay, uh, Carl, you got to buy a new computer. That's it. Yeah, right. No, don't you want to do that, Bob? I'm, I'm kidding. Not, I'm kidding. Not for that price. I haven't had a problem hearing either. I've had no spaces. Yeah. 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 Listen, all of you be safe. Um, we finished a major work, and I'm actually proud of everybody and glad. When we started Dostoevsky, what, five, six months ago, and I know it got put to rest for a long time. I'm proud. You know, we took on a huge book, even if everybody didn't finish it. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of the great works of modernity. I think there's something prophetic to it. Um, he's a great, great writer. We, we, we dealt with evil, with justice, with sexes, um, with, a, with a country undergoing a revolution. It's right on the edge of communism. I mean, there's so much going on right on the edge of the modern world. So we, we tackled a major work for all of us, and I'm just glad that we got through it. So anyway, good for you all. Um, um, <laughs> we're going to have to step down next week because we're going to take on this very, very small book called Old Man on the Sea, but it's a, it's a great, great story. So all of you enjoy it. It's good to see you all. You all be safe, okay? All of you be safe. Thank you, Thank you Bob. Thanks. Good night, everybody. Bye. Have a good week, everyone. Bye. Everybody. Turn off the recordings. God, I keep forgetting. Oh. You disappeared a couple of times, did you? Um.